Hey, just a warning before we get started. This episode of Resistance deals with some heavy themes and has some strong language in it. We'll get started right after this short break. Back in June, a bunch of people met each other at the front lines of the protests in New York City. You may have heard us talk about them before. They're called Warriors in the Garden. And within a couple of days of them meeting, they'd form their group. And they started organizing these huge marches where thousands of people would show up. People have called us like the Summer Jam or Coachella of protests. I'm just saying, like, they have. They have. It's because it's a vibe. This is Derek Ingram, one of the founding members of the group. And when Derek says their protests feel like music festivals, he's right. At every Warriors protest I go to, I always see this random guy walking around with his shirt off, burning a single stick of incense. And whenever I see that guy, I'm always like, yeah, this really is a vibe. But there's something else that's made the Warriors popular this summer, too. It's pretty clear when you see them together at the front of the march. It's the way they lean on each other when they get tired, the constant checking in on each other. You good? What you need? I got you every few minutes. It's the Warriors bond. And Derek tells me that bond was there from the start. It's so bizarre how quickly we became friends. Not like friends, like throwing the word around. I mean, like in that first month, we were literally hanging out at my apartment, other apartments, having meetings, like people crashing on my couch, knowing people's physical illness, mental illness. We've had people in our group, family members die, like breakups, all in two and a half months. So it's like the way we just communicate and take care of each other, it's like we've known each other for a long, 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 long time. We've been through so much together in such a little bit of time. Like, we're like basically family now. And I only known you for like a couple of months. This is John Acosta, one of the Warriors. And after he met the other members this summer, he saw them as his chosen family. When I go out, I'm always letting people know that I love them, yo. Like, because it's real. I let them know that I love them. Because I appreciate them for coming out and, and fighting that fight with me, you know? They could have been like everybody else that has stayed home. Especially now that everything is open. They could have just been like, ah, I'm done. Everything is open. I'm going back to doing what the fuck I was doing. But that's not the case. Right now, who you see in out and about are the real, are, are, are actual warriors. On his bedroom wall, John has this black and white photo of the warriors together. 13 of them. Some wearing bandanas around their necks. Others holding megaphones. And of course, there's the boots. So many cool-ass combat boots. And John is right in the middle, the only one throwing up a mean black power fist. He's wearing dark shades but has this really determined look on his face. They all do. Like they're ready to ride out with each other at any moment. And the caption reads, Together, united, we'll never be defeated. If I could go back to that moment, son, I would. In a jiffy. Because that's why I felt like we were all in the same shit and we were not taking shit. But John can't go back to that moment. That moment was in June, when the streets were still full and the Warriors were leading some of the biggest protests in New York City. Since then, this group that was once hella close has started to splinter. And John has suddenly found himself on the outside, 
It just hurts. It hurts that they would do me like that. After all the shit we went through. I'm Saeed T. John Thomas Jr. And this is Resistance, a show about refusing to accept things as they are, even when it means having to find your own path. When the Warriors first met, it seemed like they agreed on a lot of things without ever really having to talk about it. We all met at the protest because we were the ones trying to keep people from spray painting, knocking over trash cans, engaging with the police in ways that could escalate quickly. Mm-hmm. So it was a bunch of peacekeepers, basically. This is Paul Spring, another founding member. And Paul remembers one of the first times he met John when they just started talking about forming an official group, a group that would be dedicated to nonviolent protests. And we went around and introduced ourselves in the beginning, like say your name and then say what skills you want to bring to the group. And so you had like Derek saying he could run the social media and you had Chi saying he could do the design for flyers. And then John, I remember he said, like the thing, the thing that I can bring is these hands. And he said, like, that he could protect the group because mm. he was skilled in, like, martial arts and boxing. And he, he was cool. I, I remember liking him right away because he just said his first name. Mm. He's like, that's, that's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> what was the energy you got from him? Like, the vibe? Oh, I thought he was cool as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, still do. Yeah. And what made you feel that way? Uh, just like the way the way he spoke, like the sound of his voice and the rhythm of his voice and how, how confident he was. The group really liked John's personality. And maybe because these hands was the first skill at the top of his resume, he became a part of the grounds team. The people in the group who were responsible for going around making sure everyone is safe at the protest. John would get in between frontliners and the cops when things started to get too out of hand or too hectic. And he fit the role perfectly. He had experience. John is 32 years old, and he grew up in the Bronx, where cops are notorious for getting into it with civilians. I've dealt with NYPD in the Bronx all my life, bro. Bronx police don't, they don't give a fuck about nobody out here. They'll arrest you for whatever. They'll pull you over for whatever. They're not afraid to get di- dirty over here. They're they looking for a fight out here. Since as early as John can remember, the NYPD has been showing up unannounced in his life. He remembers when he was six years old, being woken up in the middle of the night to cops at his door. When his mom opened the door, they pointed flashlights and guns at the both of them. My mother said, no, that's my son. They were looking for somebody who didn't live there. Through middle school, high school, and all the years since, John's felt like cops are always walking into the most intimate parts of his life and walking out as they pleased, reminding him that they could end his life at any moment. So when other warriors started having trouble with the cops, John was there for them. Like the day Derek found himself trapped in his apartment with dozens of police officers on the other side of the door. John was one of the first people on the scene. And when the cops finally left, 
He was up the stairs and through Derek's door in a heartbeat. I, I ran, I ran right up. I ran up to see Derek. I was making sure he was good. Making sure he was good. You know what I'm saying? I will always think of him. I will always feel he's my brother. You know what I'm saying? So I went up there and I just made sure that he was good. What do you see? What do you do? He was happy to see it was one of us. Yeah. I could tell he was happy. I'm thinking about it now. I was like, that was, that was a good moment, man. Like yeah. I seen him, he seen me, and he seen that it was it was somebody that loves him that was there, you know. Yeah. It wasn't some fucking cop ready to take him out and shit. You just like hug him. Hell yeah, man. Hug the shit out that man. I'm proud of that man, yo. That same day during the standoff at Derek's, John had gotten a message on IG from an anonymous account. It said, you are next. He didn't really take it seriously. He laughed at it, actually. Told him something like, F you, you will have to catch me first. And he forgot about it. But then, a couple of weeks later, this happened. Hey, um, what's up, everyone? Um, I just got hit by a car. I'm 100% sure they just, they tried to kill me. They hit me and they booked it out of there. John is on Instagram Live talking to his followers. He holds up his bleeding wrist to the camera, shows a couple nasty scrapes on both his legs. He looks like he's in shock as he's telling people what happened. I'm moving out of his way. I'm moving into moving more to my lane, and uh, he just jumps the cur- jumps the just the, jumps the line and hits me, looks back, and then bounces. Your man seen me, son. Like he seen me. Clear, son. I'm wearing fucking red. What the fucking is mad lit out here. John says he looked up at the car as it drove away. He used to look at cars for hours to pass the time when he was a kid. So it didn't take him very long to recognize the make and model of the car he was looking at. I just want to let y'all know that it was an Impala. Um, unmarked. He looked at me right in my face before he did it. Chevy Impalas are the kind of cars that cops are known to drive when they're undercover. Shit, man. Um, I don't even know what to, what to really think right now. I just wanted to let y'all know um, because this is some crazy shit right now. As I'm watching John on Instagram, I can see him start to put pieces together and develop a theory that the person who hit him had to be a cop. Can't even call the fucking police because they're not going to do shit. Um, fuck 12. So I can't, I, I, I don't know if there's a way that I can prove that it was them. I'm looking for some cameras, but anybody that's out here in these streets, man, just be careful. Three days after the hit and run, I talked to John over the phone about what happened. And at that point, the idea that it was a cop who hit him was now solid in his mind. He was sure of it, and he was pissed. This shit changes everything. Cops did this shit to me. That's what I believe, because it was a fucking Impala. These motherfuckers tried to take me away from my family, man. All I want now is I want revenge. Up until now, John's disagreed with the Warriors here and there, but mostly he's been on the same page. De-escalation, nonviolence, agitate, but keep it under control. But as I'm talking to John, it's like I'm hearing him move further and further away from that. You think I give a fuck about some peaceful protest now? <sighs> nah, man. That's an attempt of my life, man. I can't let that roll. I'm going to get my revenge. And that's a fact. Well, 
Uh, bro, I hear you, bro, but, like, you can't get yourself in a situation where you just end up in a worse situation than you already in. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I understand. So you got to be smart. Yeah, but it's not... That's always how it starts. Like, people are like, yeah, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to be smart. But then it never ends well. Like, it never ends well, bro. Like, I get it. I get the anger, man. I get it. But... You got, you got to think about your you got to think about your mom you got to think about your kids like I I am figure out a, a different way to go about it other than what's the to, different what's the different way me 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 building up some bullshit cases around him and then he still he still gets to be outside and chill and then if he wants to at that moment you know he's like right, I'm free let me take this time to finish this motherfucker off you think I want to give him that opportunity I didn't do shit bro. Every single time that one of these motherfuckers is in my face doing some bullshit, I don't I don't knock him out. I don't kick him in the dick. I don't kick him in the knee. I don't I don't I don't push kick him in the face. I, I don't I don't do any I just I just go, ah, right, it's cool. And I take the high road. This is an attempt on my life, man. I'm not going around sleeping anymore. Like that shit woke me the fuck up. It woke me the fuck up. I remember him calling me right after that. This is Paul again. And he's like, I'm done. I'm done with the nonviolence. How did you feel? Um, I mean, I, I understood it. I got it. I've always gotten it with him. I've, al- I've always gotten it, but I've always warned him against it because of what he's up against. He's got these hands, but they got guns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I just, I know that they're not afraid to, to use them. A few weeks after the hit and run, I went to visit John at his home in the Bronx. He had told me he couldn't commit to being nonviolent anymore and that he wanted revenge. I wanted to see how he was doing. I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks since we last, since we last spoke. So how have you been? Dealing with it. There you go. That's how I've been. John tells me he's been seeing a therapist to help him cope with depression. Lately, he's been feeling more and more isolated, and he's been spending less and less time with the Warriors. It's September. Crowds at protests have started to thin. People aren't coming out as much, and there's fewer Warriors protests, too. And a lot of activists in New York are trying to figure out what's next. Since his hit and run, John's been thinking a lot about that. He's still very angry about what happened to him, and he wants to find a way to translate that anger into action. He's become fixated on this idea of taking the protest back to week one, when it seemed like everyone was as angry as he is now. If you, if you was to go back to any video of any, any city that was protesting on week one, you see how hectic it was. Fires everywhere, rioting and looting. In all honesty, that's the only thing that they hear and that they don't laugh at. He says the kind of protest the Warriors have been doing since then, the kind with lots of dancing and singing and people burning incense, they're not working for him anymore. Y'all love it when they're happy. I do, man. It makes me happy too, man. But we just don't have no time for that. 
And when I seen them, I just feel like they're losing sight of what's going on. I've been thinking about that solid, like solid. All this bullshit. And we out here giving out black joy. Yo, I was, I was fine with it for a little bit. Then I started to realize, yo, what the, what the fuck is going on? I looked at myself. I'm like, where the, where the fuck is the rage, bro? Like, I'm not feeling this no more. I think black joy is a form of protest. This is Derek Ingram again. He says the joy is the whole point. Because the amount of, of deaths that occur at the hands of police um, and all the inequities that black people have persevered, one would expect us to be jaded, to be upset, to be angry. And that's also a stereotype is that black men are especially are dangerous, that black women are angry. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of do the juxtaposition of that and show them that we, we're happy, we're carefree, we're light. We haven't been completely bogged down by the horrible things that society has thrown at us. I think it's a form of protest. Let me ask a fucking question. When Breonna Taylor was laying in her bedroom, was she giving out black joy? Was she listening to music? Was she bopping her fucking head? No. No music. It was just rings. Gunshots. Why the fuck are we giving them our black joy? They don't deserve our black joy. They deserve the black rage we have. Every ounce of it. This is war. I march now and I'm just like, yo. This is, this is, this is nothing. This ain't, this ain't worth it. I'm just here in the parade. It's feeling more like a parade than a march now. Yes. Yes. I've been to parades. I know a parade when I see one. I don't need floats. All I need is this this happy, happy music. Give me war music. Give me a drum. Just this. The whole time. Boom. 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 And all you see is a bunch of people marching. Dressed in black. The very next day, John invited me to a protest in the Bronx. He wanted me to see how he thinks it should be done. No dancing, no cops bopping their heads along with protesters, no black joy. John wanted me to see what protesting with rage looks like. That's coming up after the break. What's good, y'all? Welcome back. By September, I'd been spending a lot of time with John, calling him over the phone, visiting him in the Bronx, and I felt like I was watching him shift from John the warrior in the garden to somebody completely different. And every time we spoke, John would tell me about vengeance and rioting. And he'd paint this blood-dazzling picture of what protests were like in week one when everything seemed to be on fire and the authorities were taking notice. He wanted to take things back to that time. So John invited me to come see what that protest could look like. I pull up to a park in the Bronx and there's a small crowd of people gathered at the center, no more than a hundred. 
The organizers are members from a few activist communities in New York. A couple folks from Black Lives Matter New York, some more from Abolition Park, and a few warriors have shown up too, even though, as a group, they decided not to promote the event. I look around the crowd for John, but I don't see him yet. Yo, what's up, baby? But I do run into another warrior, Marv. A little nervous, but I'm not. What you nervous about? The, just the amount of cops that's out here and the uh, objective for today. Still, I mean, like, still don't, still don't notice a lot of trusted faces, and we don't have a thousand people here, so. The objective for the day is for this small group of protesters to march onto the George Washington Bridge and shut it down. It's something activists have been discussing all summer, but haven't done, mainly because it's a big risk. If you get trapped on the bridge, there's not many places you can run. But if they can do it successfully, it'll be a big reward. That bridge makes more than $1 million a day in tolls. If they can shut it down for even an hour, they'd be costing the city a lot of money, and that'd come with a lot of news coverage and a lot of attention for the movement, too. It seems like the cops definitely know this plan. Because just a few feet away from where we're standing, patrol cars and vans are starting to pull up to follow the march, a long row of red and blue lights flashing down the street. I start looking around for John again, but I spot Chi instead. Chi Osei, the warrior from episode one who, since we last saw him, is now a full-blown politician campaigning for votes. He's even dressed like one. You like my collared shirt today? Do I look like a politician today? You do look like a politician today. <laughs> nice. In his sweater-collar shirt combo, Chi tells me he's been asked to give a speech. He walks up onto a makeshift podium. How are we going to change the course of this war, the course of this battle against criminal injustice in New York City, criminal injustice in the United States of America? How do we change the tide of this battle? This is a speech Chi has been giving all summer about what's next for protesters. Like John, Chi also believes that they're in a war. But he thinks it's a war best fought through legislation inside the walls of city council, not on the George Washington Bridge. Once he finishes his speech, he gets ready to leave. So you're, you're, about, to, you're about to leave? Mm-hmm. Why don't you want to stay? Because I have other things to do today. I have other campaign matters to attend to today. All right, man. Be and safe. tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, you too. The, the cops are already out here today. You can tell that the energy is a little different here in the Bronx in terms of uh, just the police that have already arrived. My power is outside of those bars. I will not be arrested. <laughs> I won't. I won't. There's some of okay. There's some people here. I'm not snitching and bulletproof vests. It's not my energy. I can't be doing that. Just as Chi is telling me that, I finally spot John in a bulletproof vest. He's dressed in all black: black pants, black long sleeve shirt, black Kaepernick jersey, black ski mask, and a green beret. He calls Chi over. They chat, then hug for a second. Afterwards, I walk over to John. What's up? What's good, man? How you doing? Disappointing. Why? I'm proud that everybody's out here that wanted to come out here because it just shows me who has heart. But then, 
it just shows me how many people are capping, how many people just running their mouth. I'm not an asshole. I love my squad, but where's Chi now? Not long after, the protest starts to move. It's important that we keep it tight and that we keep it structured. All right? Who's with me? If you're with me, put your fist in the air. If you're with me, put your fist in the air. As we march from the park into the streets of the Bronx, John moves through the small crowd checking in on people, doing what he always does, being a protector, the caravan of cops trailing not too far behind us. And after about an hour and a few small confrontations with the police, we finally reach the George Washington Bridge. And when John sees it, his eyes light up through the holes in his ski mask. This is the bridge. Oh, shit. Watch this magic. Watch. Watch this beautiful shit. I'd never seen the George Washington Bridge on foot. All 4,760 feet of it, just towering right in front of us. It's the kind of thing you look up at and you just feel so small and so insignificant. But I look over at John and that's not what he's feeling at all. Oh, yes. And I feel so good. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like an orgasm. I know, but I feel like I'm about to whoop. Ah, all over the NYPD, baby. We haven't even gotten onto the bridge yet, and John is already excited. One of the organizers gets on the mic and riles up the rest of the crowd before they march onto the bridge. Are you ready? Yeah! Are you ready? Yeah! Are you ready? Yeah! Let's go! John rushes to the on-ramp with the other protesters. They grab giant construction cones and place them in front of traffic. And pretty soon, the whole upper deck of the bridge, eight lanes wide from New York to New Jersey, is no cars. Just this small group of protesters suspended above the Hudson River, standing shoulder to shoulder, arms linked, hyped about what they're accomplishing. I find John darting around the crowd. How does, it, how does it feel, bro? We the few. We the few are many. That's how I feel. Look at the power we have. And none of our brothers and sisters came out of supporters. None. For 40 minutes, John and the other activists keep the upper level of the bridge shut down. We got it jammed up. This is where we but at some point, the cops drive onto the bridge to get them to disperse. By the end of the night, as the protest moved off the bridge and the crowd went to a nearby police precinct, the cops who'd been following us all night had had enough. I saw them start snatching protesters out of the crowd. People were trampling over each other to get away, some terrified and crying, others pushing back against the cops. Six people got arrested. John was proud that they took the bridge, but he felt betrayed that not many warriors wanted to be a part of it. I said, John, I don't think the warriors should participate and I cannot participate. I think you like the idea of taking a bridge because it sounds cool. 
This is Derek again. I didn't hear any demands. I didn't hear an end game. I didn't know what a resolution was. And when something is a performance, you don't necessarily have to have those things. But when something is putting people's lives at risk and you're calling it a political statement as well, that's a diff- there's a different threshold, don't you think? So, yeah, I'm glad we weren't a part of that. Activist groups disagree over tactics and ideology all the time. Like the Black Panthers. One of the group's most infamous members, Eldridge Cleaver, thought the group was spending too much time on social programs and not enough time on armed revolution. He said the Panthers had become nothing more than a, quote, breakfast club for children. He and Huey Newton fought and fought, and finally, Cleaver was out. Later on, Asada Shakur left the Panthers too, partly because of ideological differences, but also because she thought Huey Newton was kind of full of himself. She said he kept giving himself these ridiculous titles like Supreme Commander. You can agree on the big picture. You can share this huge vision for how you want the world to be. But on your way there, you can get stuck too. If it's not the big stuff like tactics, it'll be the little things. A stupid title or an idea that doesn't go over well. For John and the Warriors, It was one of those little things that pushed him towards a breaking point. It started with an idea John had. He put it in the group chat. I'm like, you know what? Let's do a black man's march. That's a good idea. John thought since so many black men had been killed over the summer, why not have a march to honor them? He also thought it would be a good chance to take on a different role with the Warriors. He didn't want to just do crowd control at protests anymore. And he thought the black men's march would be a great idea. Nobody said anything. <laughs> he said it again. And I, so I said something. I'm like, John, this is inappropriate. It makes no sense. He's like, what about this is horrible? I don't understand. And I was like, if I have to explain this, that's a problem. And then he goes, we have marches for Black women, like kind of along those lines. This is Kiara Williams, another founding member of the Warriors. He wasn't talking in the chat for days, and that, like, that's like one of the first things he said. I was gone. Like, I was gone for like a twirl loop. I was so confused. To Kiara and Derek, the whole movement for Black Lives has been predominantly focused on men, while other voices, women, queer folks, often get pushed to the side. Putting on a Black men's march would just add to a problem the movement already had. So Kiara wrote back, You comparing a Black men's march with a Black women's march isn't okay. Do you feel like he he got it? He understood what you were saying? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. I feel like to this day, John still feels like I was against him at that time and I didn't understand him. And it's not that I didn't understand him. I understood him exactly perfectly fine. But it's just like, how did you not, how how did you not see what was wrong with suggesting that in a movement like this? I don't feel like I brung any sort of gender thing into it. I didn't even think of it like that. I am not misogynistic. I am, I do not have, what's that shit called? Um, toxic, toxic masculinity. I do not have that whole. Yo, this, this year was the year that I learned about all of that. All of that shit. Like, I was like, yo, what the fuck? This is something, this is a thing? I didn't even know that was a thing. After things got heated, John left the group chat. He felt like the Warriors didn't want to hear him out. It confirmed to John what he'd felt for so long now. The group didn't really value his ideas, and they didn't respect them. That triggered the downward spiral, I felt like. You thought that was like one of the... That bur- was, yeah, that was one of the last arguments. 
our disagreements, I would say. By this point, the Warriors in the Garden had gone from unofficial activist collective to a legit 501c3. Derek was speaking on panels, Kiara was connecting with activists in other parts of the country, and Chi was running for public office. In a lot of ways, they were professionalizing their work. Meanwhile, they saw John posting things on social media like, burn it all down. And he was spending more and more time with other protesters who felt that way too. Everyone was just worried, like, okay, like, is he okay? Like, what's going on? And like, this is also going to reflect on us as a whole. And I think that's one thing that John possibly forgot is like, no matter how much he says, I'm doing this by John, it'll just always be John did this, but John's from Warriors in the Garden. They were not headed down the same path at all. And it was obvious they needed to talk about it. Here's Paul again. We had a Zoom meeting and... um John, John was like, okay, I'm going to let all of you guys talk first, and then I'll say my piece. He literally said, I want every single person to say their issue with me back to back. I won't interrupt you because I want to hear all of this and I want to know how to respond. And immediately it just turned into an attack on me. It didn't feel like, it didn't feel like they wanted to to keep me. They felt like they was just trying to find a way to out me. What was the first thing they said? Um, Kiara started it where she doesn't trust me um, because of uh, I'm, I'm a liability or something like that, or I'm, I'm a risk or some shit. I told John, I said, I personally would not like you in the group anymore. Um, because of your actions. Personally, we all love John. Personally. But when you see kind of the shift in character and the shift in beliefs, we had to come to an agreement like, okay, what's best for the group? The Warriors agreed that things would need to change if John was going to stay in the group. They came up with three things. First, that John would need to look after himself, make his mental health a priority. Second, he'd need to be loyal to the group. And third, maybe the biggest issue, that he'd need to commit to being nonviolent. But he didn't want to really address our three uh, demands. And he couldn't, he couldn't commit to them. And I just couldn't focus, I was, I was mad and I was angry and it wasn't supposed to go that way. It was supposed to be something really, really calm, really, everybody talked respectfully, but nobody was doing that. Finally, the Warriors decided to call a vote on whether John should be allowed to stay in the group or not. Kiara voted to have him excommunicated from the group. She already had her mind made up. Oscar voted for him to be excommunicated from the group. Oh, Liv voted to have him excommunicated as well. Um, Paul asked him again, can you commit to these things? He was like, I don't know. And Paul said, that's my answer. I'm, you know, and voted for him to be excommunicated from the group. And me and Joseph Cochran didn't even get the vote. It didn't matter at that point. It just ended with, with, with me hearing unanimous decision. And I said, okay, so you all voted that shit? I said, y'all voted? I said, I could pink. Because it's unanimous. I just ended the call. You all voted beforehand. You bunch of backstabbers. You a bunch of snakes. People hung up really quickly. 
um, I just wanted, yeah, to have more of like a closure on it, but it, it just ended on like, all right, it's done. You're out. I know he's, he feels hurt, disrespected and, and, and pained by how it went about, but at the core of it, beyond the words and the mean stuff and the feelings, it's, it's just three things that we need him to do. These days, when I talk to Derek or Kiara or Paul about John, they say they still care about him and that they understand his anger towards cops. They feel it too. After all, it's that anger and rage that brought them all to the front lines of the protests in the first place. Before they had the huge following, the connections, the nonprofit status, before they even had the name Warriors in the Garden, they were just a bunch of people who came together because they were the loudest in the crowd. Back then, when they were chanting together, it sounded like they were all speaking with one voice. But then the protest died down, and the chanting stopped. And suddenly, they realized they weren't saying the same thing. A few weeks after the Zoom call, I was back at John's place in the Bronx. We sat on his bed, just talking about how everything went down. Yo, those warriors, man, they betrayed me, man. They betrayed me, son. They left me out there in the cold to rot, bro. Did me dirt. But on the wall in front of him, he still had that photo of the warriors. All of them together, like a family portrait. I didn't look at the Warriors to be an org. Like it was a family. I looked at it like it was my family. I still love them. Okay? It's true. I love them. I love them. I love them. Early morning with the curtains drawn So I try and come up with the perfect joint to get subversive on But my emotions keep floating to the surface So I'ma keep the text plainly The next minute get cursive on It gets harder to breathe when I can't clear the air Thanks for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression, anxiety, or hopelessness, there are ways to cope and find support. Go to spotify.com resources for a list of mental health resources where you are. Resistance is produced by Wallace Mack, Bethel Hobte, and Aaron Randall. Our supervising producer is Sarah McVie. We're edited by Lynn Levy, Lydia Paul Green, and Brennan Klinkenberg. Mixing, scoring, and magic by Katherine Anderson and Bobby Lord. Theme by Bobby Lord. Original compositions by Drea, the Vibe Dealer. Liz Fulton is our music supervisor. Good looks, Liz. Thank you. Fact-checking is by Michelle Harris. Our show art is by Darian Burks of the Stuyvesants. Credits music, what you're listening to right now, for those of y'all who always ask, what's the credit song? Credits music is Heaven on Earth by Saw Rock. Special thanks to Chinjirai Kumanyika, Hannah Joffi-Walt, Khalil Grant, and Bridget Tremating. You can find me on Twitter at SaeedTTJ, and you can follow us on IG, at Resistance Show. Resistance is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. See y'all in two weeks. The 
image in their reports But you sweep your horrors under the rug And call us terrorists for commenting on the blood This revolution won't be televised I pulled the plug, now your paradise is face to face with the helicopter Stage. Melanin rich, but esteemed below the poverty line. No royalty on the team, but the master card decline. So tribal lines getting drawn because of dollar signs. The tiger eyes can't see the forest for the falling pines. So we lick a shot, pay the toll for it, stick a shot. Throw the bands for a fleet of fawns and some liquor shots. System got us all twisted with no pot to piss and fame. The new religion, but you gon' believe in when the picture stops. So when the smoke clears and the mirror reflects black, what you see in front of you, do you respect that? We gon' be alright, that's 100% fact. That's on everything I love, 100% black. <laughs> 